Images are powerful things. If you have uh, a, a loving earthly father, then your image of what a father is, especially a heavenly father, is, is a good image, isn't it? And so when you start reading the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, it's a good thing. But if your image of what a father is is one of abuse or neglect, then you're probably going to struggle perhaps most of your life with trusting God and understanding that he is a loving heavenly father. I think images are really, really powerful things, especially the subconscious ones that we're not completely aware of. I think one of the most powerful images in the Bible is this, that the Christian life is a journey. Christian life is a journey. There's a gate, and then there's a path, and at the end of the path is life. And this is the verse that was read out of Matthew 7 earlier, which I noticed was the e, was that the ESV? Yeah, they got it right. The NIV got it wrong. We're working on that. <clears throat> But this is, this is a, an incredibly powerful image. See, the Christian life isn't only just about believing certain things, is it? The Christian life isn't only about doing certain things. It's not about having an, an emotional experience at camp, or sometimes what I call a spiritual spasm. That's not what it's only about. The Christian life is a journey. And that journey is a marathon, isn't it? It's not a sprint. And I was thinking through contextually uh, where you all are coming from theologically. I snuck into you all there. I'm a northerner, but I spent high school and college in Kentucky, so uh, that's both worlds as well. Let me put it this way. The, the, the battle that Paul was fighting in Judaism was the works righteousness, but it was also something else. It was that there are a series of isolated events. And if you are circumcised, if you're male, if you've done your temple tax, you know, if you did these isolated experiences, then Abraham sits at the gates of hell and makes sure that you don't go in no matter what. And that was the world that Paul lived in, and it, unfortunately, it's the world that we live in. We live in a world where if you say that life is a journey, what people are going to think of is, yeah, well, I do this on Sunday morning. And I do this on the computer when people are looking, but I, I do this when people aren't looking. And we, there's a tendency in the church, it's not tendency, it's, it's an epidemic, to view the Christian life as these series of isolated events not connected. And as long as we do a couple of these things, then uh, Jesus will be at the gates of hell making sure we, we don't get in. But life is a journey. It's a consistent journey. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And for you all, you understand that. It's a relationship, right? Christian life is a relationship with God every day. And there's a starting point to that journey, and we call it conversion. Uh, we, you may refer to it as being grasped by God's love. Uh, Jesus calls it going through the gate. But there's a gate, and then there's a, the journey itself. We call it the Christian life. We call it discipleship. We call it sanctification. Uh, returning God's love in a relationship to him. Jesus calls it walking down the path. And then there's journey's end. We call it heaven. Jesus calls it life. But that's the imagery that, that the Christian life is a journey. And I think it's an incredibly powerful 
image that should be one of the controlling images in how we think. Jesus uses this image specifically at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where it's a series of twos, two trees and two houses. And in this particular case, there are two gates and there are two roads, or in some translation, two ways. And there's two sets of travelers and there's two destinations. And as a conclusion of the sermon, Jesus calls us to choose. He calls us to pick one over the other. I taught at Azusa Pacific for 10 years. I was the token Calvinist in a Wesleyan school. And we had an ongoing debate. I said, you show me one verse that says you have free will and I'll become a Wesleyan. No one ever pointed out this verse. We choose. We choose. That's what some of my Reformed brothers and sisters don't understand, that we choose. We have to choose one gate, one path that leads to one destination. So one of them is this wide open gate. And you just got to imagine, it's one of these toll booths in Southern California. You just drove through one. They've gotten rid of all the, you just, everybody just drives through and they read the, the, whatever it is on your car. And you can go through these toll booths, you know, six, seven, ten lanes wide at 60 miles an hour. And that's like, that's this one gate. It's wide open. It's easy to get through. And you can, you can take all the baggage through this gate you want to. You can take your pickup truck. You can hook a trailer to it metaphorically. And, and you can drag all your most prized possessions through this wide open gate. You can take your pride and your arrogance and your self-sufficiency all of these things, and you can pile the, the truck high with them. You don't have to get rid of anything to go through this gate. Don't even have to really slow down. And the road on the other side of the gate is really easy to drive on, right? It's a four, five, six-lane freeway. It's wide open. And in the slow lane, you go 75. In the fast lane, you go 95 in Southern Cal. I mean, you can go any speed you want as long as it's 10 miles over the speed limit. But that's what this road is like on the other side of this gate. It's this wide open road and it's easy to travel. You can, you can travel down it any way you want. And unfortunately, there are many people on that road. And the theme song they're all singing, the song that's blaring on the radios is the poem Invictus. Do you know the poem? It just went completely blank in my head. Let me take a peek. Duh. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloodied but unbowed. It matters not how straight the gate, meaning narrow, it matters not how charged the scrolls. I am the master of my fate. Can you finish it? I am the captain of my soul. That's the theme song for the people speeding down this wide open road. And where does that highway go? Where does that freeway end? It ends in death. It ends in destruction. It ends in a place where everything that is good is absent. Everything that is beautiful and lovely is gone. And unfortunately, there are many people who go there, and when they get there, they realize they are neither captain of their fate nor master of their soul. But there's a second gate. It's a much more difficult gate to get through. And the King James translation 
uh, that it's a straight gate. It's, it's an old English word that means narrow. It doesn't mean straight like a straight line. It's, it's, a, it's a very narrow gate. And I, in my mind, I, I envision almost a country lane where there's a, a quick little turn off on the freeway. And there's this real little country kind of couple of posts, old wooden gate. And then beyond it, a very narrow, weavy, difficult to traverse country lane. And every once in a while, you'll see a few bands of travelers on it. No, no freeway congestion here. Just a few bands of travelers. And you ask the question, why is the gate so narrow? It's a good question. It's one of the first questions I want to ask Jesus. Why did you create reality in such a way that the gate to life is narrow? But it's a very narrow gate. In fact, it's so narrow, it's, you only go through one person at a time. Sometimes when I think about the image, I think of a turnstile where you can only go through one person at a plan. There's no family plan here. Just because your uncle went through doesn't mean all the kids get to go through. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a narrow, narrow gate. And in fact, it's so narrow, you've got to leave all your baggage behind. You have to leave your pride. You have to leave your self-sufficiency. Those things are supposed to come off our backs. And we go through the turnstile one person at a time. And the path on the other side is a difficult path. The, the Greek word, it's one of these Greek words you simply can't translate. Uh, it's, it's a difficult path, but it's difficult because it's, uh, the word has to do with persecutions. And it's, it's, a, it's a narrow path. It's a difficult path. It's a, it's a path of conflict and a path of persecutions. And Jesus isn't saying that it's necessarily the road to martyrdom, although for many Christians around the world it is. But what happens is that we're changed at the gate, right? God fundamentally changes us at the gate. He gives us the new heart, a heart made of flesh, a flesh that's malleable and moldable by the work of the Spirit. It's a, it's, it's a flesh where the law is written on it, not externally on stone. And he, he changes us at the gate. And changed people just live changed lives. That's just the way it is. Changed people live changed lives. There's, you don't have an option. Changed people live changed lives. Jesus doesn't say you should be salt of the world. You should be the light of the world. He says you are. We are the salt of the world. We are what's rubbed into the meat of society to slow decay. We are the light that sheds illumination to a dark and dying culture. That's what we are. We're changed at the gate, and we live as salt and light. And as we live as salt and light, we are naturally brought into conflict with those people on the road to perdition. So there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. There may even be martyrdom. And because this road is narrow, because this road is difficult, there are very few who make that choice to go down that path. It's, as a pastor, it was always frustrating. The majority are always going to reject the gospel. Always. Well, I shouldn't say that. There are times of great revivals, Wesley. Um, but by and large, the vast majority of people reject the gospel. You're learning about remnant theology in the Old Testament classes? Still true today. Still true. There's few who choose to go through the narrow gate. But the fun thing is at the end of the journey, when we get to heaven, there's going to be more people there than there are uh, grains of sand on the shore. There are more people in heaven than there are stars in the sky. That was God's promise to Abraham, and it will be true. But in our day and age, there are few who find this road. 
And the question that Jesus is asking is, which gate will you choose? Which gate will you choose? And both these questions must be asked from our pulpits. And both these questions must be asked repeatedly from our pulpit. Number one, is the gate necessary? Must we go through the gate? Is conversion essential or does, quote, love win? Yes, it's absolutely essential, isn't it? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. In 10.9, I am the gate, and it's those who enter by me who will be saved. And there are times in the history of this world in which the message of the gate had to be emphasized. And I'm thankful for the work of Wesley. I'm thankful for the work of Calvin and Luther. I'm thankful for the work of Billy Graham. I'm, I'm thankful for the great revivals we have seen, times in history where people just thought if they were baptized as infants, they were automatically going to go to heaven. Uh, I was raised in what used to be called the Swedish Baptist Church, and uh, my forefathers left Sweden because Sweden, as the government was trying to control the church, and said that anyone who was baptized as a Swedish baby automatically got to heaven. And so the, the Baptists got up and left and started what became the Baptist General Conference, and it's got some different name now. But that, that was part of, of my tradition. It's part of your tradition with Wesley, right? And there certainly are times in history where we have to emphasize the gate. But the second question, and I think it's the burning question of today, is must we walk the path? Must we walk the path? Is discipleship necessary for salvation? The first church I ever got kicked out of, and I've been kicked out of a few, uh, had, I simply couldn't figure out what the pastor was talking about. And he wanted to say, well, do you believe that you can be a Christian without being a disciple? And I, I scratched my head and I went, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. It, it, was, it was such a totally different way of looking at Scripture that I couldn't figure it out. Went to my old seminary professor and I said, Dr. Hagner, what does this mean? And he said, I have no idea. I have no idea what it means. But there is a movement today that would completely divorce the path from the gate at any level. And we live in a a day and an age where statistically the church is no different from society. When I was pastoring, I lived on Barnard Reports. I loved the numbers he comes up with because they were were so good to getting the facts in front of people. Uh, And statistically, if you take Barnard's definition of what an evangelical is, there is no statistical difference between the church and society at all. The last last report I saw was they they had parents asking, asking parents, what are the most important things for your kids? And the church's... And society's answers were the same until point six. And it wasn't until point six. You know, the parents said, oh, we want them to be healthy, uh, good career, good marriage, blah, 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 blah. Down to six. Oh, yeah, we want them to be Christian. Six. That's the world that we live in. And those are many of the peoples that sit in our pews. Must we travel the path? Is discipleship necessary? Must we, in, in your language, as I understand it, continue to be grasped by God's love and in terms respond to that love and relationship with him? Is that something that's absolutely necessary? 
Or is everything past the gate optional? I had a friend in church who used to refer to the get out of hell free card. And it's the idea that if you do certain things and you raise your hand or whatever, you get your get out of hell free card. And you can live any way you want, it doesn't matter. And that is a dominant belief in the church today. It doesn't matter that Jesus said you have to walk the path. And it didn't matter that in the imagery, where's life? Is life on the other side of the gate? Or is it at the end of the path? It's at the end of the path, isn't it? And that's why this is such a wonderful image, that it, it encapsulates what the Christian life is all about with relationship and journey and, and a real beginning and a, a difficult but a joyful path and a, and a, a known end. That's why the, the images, I think, is so powerful. Having the wrong image when it comes to the Christian life can have devastating consequences, can't it? I know I'm preaching a bit to the choir here, but that's okay. To have the wrong image of the Christian life, it can have devastating consequences. Uh, you know, I only know of one person who wants to go to hell. Everyone else thinks they're going to heaven for whatever reason. Well, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a sincere person. Uh, I'm better than my neighbor. And I like to say, well, do you know your neighbor said the same thing about you? No, I went to Sunday school in fifth grade. So here's this Jewish concept of these isolated events that's not relationship, that's not journey, but it's just these series of different isolated events. My wife, Robin, was on a plane once, and as is true of my wife, conversations turned to Christian things very quickly. And uh, after she had had some kind of relationship with this guy in terms of getting to know him and talking with him, said, um, you know, so what do you, where are you with Jesus and you know, how do you feel about Christians and are you a Christian? And the guy said, well, I, I guess I'm a Christian. I, I, I celebrate Christmas. See, he's going to stand before the judgment seat of God thinking he's going to go to the right with the sheep. But the absolute worst illustration I know of happened in my own church. I've been preaching gate and pass stuff for years. I mean, if they were listening at all, they knew what I thought. And VBS was a really big deal in our church. It was a huge outreach. And we made these huge, uh, we made a giant pirate ship one year, about a 60-foot pirate ship. And it was, it was a lot of fun. And then so the kids would go to this main meeting and get the initial uh, uh, message or whatever. And then they'd go to different classrooms. And I started hearing, oh, I mean, we'd have about, 600 kids. So I started hearing, well, the first Sunday, there were 25 kids that became Christians. I went, wow, 25 out of 600. That's pretty good. And then the next day, it was 35. The next day, it was 45. I went, ah, some things that are too good to be true are too good to be true. So I, I went and listened. And to my absolute horror, the person leading that room had a sign-up sheet. And the person was saying to these third, fourth grade kids. You're going to burn in hell forever unless you sign this roll sheet. I said, is anyone listening to my preaching? <laughs> so she was very quickly removed, and we talked to the kids about what was true. But I didn't get to all the kids. So there are kids who are out there that think, because they did this one event, they signed their name on the wall, they got their get-out-of-hell-free card, and they're going to be impervious, probably, 
to the gospel unless the Spirit does a special work in their life. I propose to you, and I am about a two and a half point Calvinist, which means nobody really wants me. I'm somewhere kind of in the middle. I propose to you, as a reformed whatever, that the path is as necessary as the gate. That has to be our message. That the path is as necessary as the gate. I think scripture is so phenomenally clear on this. I scratch my head and I wonder how anybody could disagree with that statement. It is he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Okay, I'm going to copy you, Ben. Ben came and, and did a great talk in, in Portland once, and he was talking about the woman who, the, who was bleeding, who touched Jesus, and Jesus said, who touched me? And here's Ben. He goes, I wonder what Jesus meant when he said, who touched me? Maybe, maybe he meant, who touched me? <laughs> that was a great line. I've used it many times. Yeah, maybe Jesus means that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Maybe Paul actually meant that we are reconciled with Christ if we persevere, Romans 8. Maybe the author of Hebrews means it when he says, seek holiness without which no one will see God. Maybe those verses actually mean what they say. And we shouldn't use theological systems to remove the plain and obvious meaning of the text. I often say, Jesus didn't say, do this or do that, believe this or believe that. Jesus said, follow me. That's, that's his understanding of what a Christian is, uh, of what a follower. I don't even like to, I don't even use the word Christian unless I have to. I prefer to use the word follower because it was Jesus' word. And it's not open to a lot of the misunderstandings that happen with the word Christian. Jesus says, follow me. We live in a day, brothers and sisters, that this has to be the message. It has to be the message. If we are not salt, if we are not light, then we cease to have a function in this world. And we cease to have a good news. We only have other news. We, we cease to have the, the power to truly impact and change people through the power of the Spirit for entrance into and growth within the kingdom of God. We must, in all aspects of our life, be fundamentally different from the world because we were changed at the gate and changed people live changed lives. So the simple question this morning I'd like to leave you with is what image? What image controls your thinking? When you shut your eyes and you think about the Christian life, what is that image? And I'd really encourage you to use the gate and the path or similar imagery to help the people sitting in the pews of your church, not all of whom are true followers of Christ, to understand that the gate and the path is critical and life is at the end. Let's pray. Father, my prayer from my brothers and sisters here at Asbury is that we will adopt biblical language, we will adopt biblical metaphors, we will adopt biblical ways of thinking. 
Help us not to truncate the gospel. Help us not to make it uh, that the yoke is heavy. The yoke is light because it's joyous, even though it's on a difficult path. But help us to be complete, Father. Help us to find ways to express the deep inner theological convictions of our heart so that we can help people see that this thing we call Christianity is not a series of isolated events, but it's, it's life with you, day in and day out, every hour, every minute, life lived with you. And may we all find images and ways of expressing that are true to Scripture and powerful within our own culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.